want to welcome you to our uh, Easter weekend at Gateway. And I'm actually feeling pretty relaxed here. This is our third service of the weekend. And, and last night we kind of had to stay on track because we had something going on afterwards. And then we had to literally kick people out of the last service so you guys could have parking spaces. But there's nothing going on after this. So uh, I'm feeling pretty relaxed and glad to be here and glad that, uh, that you're here. Um, so last weekend, I have to start by telling you a story. Last weekend, uh, my daughter was here. Uh, our youngest, uh, Abigail, is a uh, senior. In fact, she's graduating this month um, from Grand Canyon University. And so she was home for spring break. And last weekend on Sunday, she was here in the morning with my wife. And they were out in the foyer. And I was out in the foyer. And they were having a conversation that I wasn't involved in. I was a little bit away, but I'm kind of one of those helicopter parents. And when she's in town, I'm kind of always nearby. And so I was over here, and they were over here. And somebody asked my daughter a question. They said, hey, so Abigail, that's an interesting name. Like, is there a story behind that? And so I quickly sprinted over and I said, yes, <laughs> there's a story behind that. And my daughter's like, oh no. And so I'm like, I got to tell you, because I love this story. I love to tell the story. So um, we have three kids. When uh, my wife was pregnant with uh, our first child, um, we kind of went through, you know, the whole the, the baby name book and all that and trying to come up with a name for a girl and a name for a boy. And we didn't know uh, if it was going to be a girl or a boy. Uh, we didn't want to know. I was working on the names. I was a youth pastor at the time. And so we, were, we had like 100 names from kids in the youth group. And so we had all these names trying to figure it out. And I didn't know how to sort it out. And one night I had a dream. And in my dream, I dreamt that uh, my wife gave birth to a daughter and we named her Hope. So the next morning when we woke up, I told my wife, I'm like, good news. We're having a daughter and we're naming her Hope. All done. We don't have to look at names anymore. She was kind of skeptical and we ended up having a boy. And so when we had a boy, I'm like, I, didn't, I did not know what to name him. So we named him Robert Christopher. Robert, my name, my dad's name, Christopher, that's his name. So he kind of goes by his middle name, Chris or Christopher. And so then when my wife was pregnant with our second child, again, we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl for sure. And um, I was just like, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a girl. And I think we're going to name her Hope. And uh, we had another boy. Uh, and so we named him Nicholas because I had nothing. So we named him Nicholas, Gregory, my middle name. And then when my wife was pregnant with our third child, and again, we didn't want to know if it was a boy or a girl. We didn't know. And, but I was like, I think it's going to be a girl. My wife finally agreed. She said, yes, I think it's going to be a girl. A different kind of pregnancy. And so during the entire pregnancy, we kept calling the baby um, Hope. And a bunch of variations of Hope, which I won't get into. But Hope. And then, um, and then when she was born... Right? She was born. I'm standing there. She was born on December 22nd. She was born. I remember holding her and she's beautiful and she's perfect. And I'm so excited. And I look at her and I'm like, I just had this feeling like she's not a hope. Um, she took offense at that uh, about a year ago. I said, honey, I didn't say we had no hope. I just said, I felt like you weren't a hope. I didn't, I did, you know how it is, parents? I'm like looking and going, she doesn't look like a hope. And I didn't have the heart to tell my wife because we've been calling her hope for months and months and months. So, you know, as soon as she was born, everybody's like, what's her name? Hope, we're calling her hope. Nurses are calling her hope. And then um, my wife wanted to get out of there because it was Christmas Eve. And she said, you know, let's, we, we, we need to get home. We need to name the baby. And so I was, I've been putting this off. So I finally told my wife, I said, Honey, I'm really sorry about this. I don't know how to tell you this, but I don't think we should name her Hope. And my wife looked at me and said, oh, thank goodness, because me either, right? But we didn't know what to name her. We had, we had no name, right? So we got that baby name book and started in the A's. And I'm all about efficiency, and we got to, we got to the A, B, right? And I'm like, Abigail, 
that's kind of a cool name. I never thought of that. And the name Abigail means uh, her father's joy or father rejoices. And I'm like, that's it. That's what we're naming her because that's what she is to me. She's an incredible joy. And her name will always remind me of what a joy she is. And I say that because still to this day, whenever I say that name, I always remember what a great joy she has been and continues to be to my wife and I and our family. And I love that story. I always look for opportunities to tell that story. You know, the best stories in life are kind of like that. The best stories are the stories that are meaningful and the stories that are personal and that are life-changing and that are true. Those are always the best stories. And this weekend, we're talking about the greatest story of all. We're talking about the story that literally changed the world. We're talking about Easter. It's a story, by the way, that billions of people, that's billions with a B, all over the world this weekend are celebrating. They're celebrating the story of a, of a young Jewish carpenter who was born into a poor family who lived only 33 years. Think about that. I'm 57 years old. He only lived 33 years, and yet look at the mark that he made on the world. In fact, of those 33 years, only three years in, in, in public ministry, if you will, that were really the, the bulk of what we see in the Gospels. This is a man who never traveled more than 30 miles from home, and yet his name is known all over the world today. This is a man who never wrote a book, but more books have been written about him than anyone or anything else. This is a man who never wrote a song, and yet more songs have been written about him. This is a man who never owned a home, and yet more buildings have been built in his honor and in his name. And every weekend, one-third of the world's population gathers together to recount the stories, to talk about what he did and what he said and what he taught, to sing about him, but most importantly, to believe him and to believe in him. And Easter is a celebration of a historical event, a story rooted in history. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that it is the most important story that you will ever hear in your life and a story that you need to wrestle with and work through. So now, Three months ago, roughly, we were in this room celebrating another holiday. We were celebrating the birth of Christ, uh, Christmas, uh, the incarnation. And at Christmas, we always kind of talk about, you know, the, the miracle of the virgin birth and, and God in flesh and how amazing that is and that Jesus came on a mission. He came with a purpose. Uh, he, he grew up. Uh, he became a carpenter at 30 years old. We're told roughly he packed his bags, he hit the road, started traveling around, teaching, working miracles, and, and, and connecting uh, the disenfranchised and those who were far from God. But, but one of the things that Jesus did that was really polarizing, because most people don't have a problem with, you know, Jesus healing people and Jesus feeding hungry people. But what a lot of people have a problem with was his claim. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And the thing is, that's either true or it's not true. He was either telling the truth or was lying. And, and some people want to just say, well, he was a nice guy. Jesus was a nice guy, did a lot of nice things. But see, nice guys don't claim to be God. Nice guys don't heal the sick. They don't walk on water. They don't raise the dead. They don't, nice guys don't speak words that 2,000 years later are still studied and still dissected and still memorized and, and followed. See, his claim to be God infuriated the religious leaders. And the reason was simple. Because the religious leaders of that day were teaching that the way that you become right with God is through being a good person and through ritual and through religion and this is what they were teaching. Jesus comes along and says, none of that stuff makes you right with God. What makes you right with God, Jesus said, is him. 
is trusting in him, is having faith in him. He is the way to God. He is God. Well, the religious leaders, they didn't like that, and they kept kind of coming up against each other. So eventually, they figure out a way to have Jesus betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified. By the way, just as he had been telling his disciples. And when Jesus was crucified, it's important for us to remember that his disciples on that day ran. They hid. Their hope died with Christ when he died on that cross. So because Jesus did not ask his followers to trust in his ideas or to, to, to trust in his strategies for living or how to become a better person. Instead, Jesus instructed his followers to put their trust in him, in him. And when he died, no one was at the foot of the cross that day saying, hey, let's, let's take up the teachings of Jesus and, and let's start a movement and start a church. You know, no one was doing that because Jesus was the movement and Jesus was the message. And when he died, they felt like the message died and, and the movement died. Jesus was killed on a Friday. We call that Good Friday. He rose on a Sunday and we call that Easter. And here's something I want to talk about. And that is that on resurrection morning, nobody was expecting nobody in the tomb. This was not something that any of his disciples had anticipated, even though he had told them that this is what would happen. I want to look at a couple of the Gospels and, and retrace a little bit of the story on resurrection morning and how we see this. In, in Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to start. And, and Mark tells this. He says, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So just a little background here. Jesus is crucified on a Friday. Uh, they take him off the cross and they kind of temporarily prepare his body for burial because the sun is going to set and Sabbath is going to begin. And once the Sabbath begins, the Jews can't handle the body during the Sabbath. So they, they need to get him in a tomb quickly. So somebody's like, you can use my tomb. And they kind of temporarily prepare the body, put it in the tomb. The Jewish leaders are afraid that the disciples might come and carry the body away. And so they have a stone rolled in front of this, this small cave and some guards who were placed there. So when the women come on Sunday morning, they they have certain expectations. They brought spices with them because they expected to find a body in the tomb, the body of Jesus, and they expected him to be dead. And on the very, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Because they fully expected to find several things. The tomb is sealed and a body is inside. It says, in looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was, it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, notice the detail here, uh, on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were, notice they were alarmed. Why are they alarmed? Well, because they didn't find what they were expecting to find. They expected to find a stone which had been moved away. They expected to find a dead body which they did not find. And there was somebody in there that they didn't know and they weren't expecting. 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed, because you can see the look on their face. They're alarmed. You seek Jesus. So, you know, they're, they're kind of like, yeah, that's right, of Nazareth, who's crucified. Yes, that's right. We saw that. Yeah. And he is risen. Now, now, they're, now they're not, it's not computing for them. And he is not here. See the place where they laid him. So it seems clear enough, but here's the thing. They're not expecting a resurrection, and they can't quite process it. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were expecting one thing, but something else happened, and it took your brain a while you've been there to like get your mind around it because it's not what you were expecting and that's what's going on here for them in John chapter 20 uh, John tells us this it says that uh, she that is Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved so it's a little background here John is writing this gospel and John never refers to himself in the first person. Um, only at the end of the book does he ever refer to himself, not by name, but he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. And he's not, he's not saying that Jesus loved him more than anyone else. He's just saying he wrote this in, uh, later in life and as he looked back, he, he really understood that the thing that defined him more than anything else was that Jesus loved him. And so this is John, how he refers to himself. And, and, uh, and they said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now this is interesting because they were just told that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and they, so, you know, they don't go to the disciples and say, hallelujah, you know, he is risen. And the disciples are like, he is risen indeed. They're just all confused by the whole thing. And, you know, they weren't like, remember how he told us he was going to rise from the dead? You know, let's celebrate and have a worship service and sing some Easter songs. And instead, they're like, someone stole the body, call 911, we got to start a search party and find the dead body, the dead body, they believe, of Jesus Christ. And Luke, it says, but the men did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Why? Because nobody was expecting nobody. And they're just like, this doesn't make sense. You ladies have been up for a long time. You need to take a nap and maybe have a snack. And maybe you went to the wrong tomb. You know, here's the thing. Dead people stay dead. In John, it, it tells us this. So Peter went out. And so apparently Peter thinks about this and is like, you know, I should probably go check this out. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that, uh, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. John is writing this, by the way. Uh, and, and they're going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is John's way of saying, so Peter and I, when we started, we were walking and then we decided to have a race. And by the way, I won. Um, that's just what he's saying. So he got there first and stooping to look in, um, and, and in his defense, by the way, we believe John was the youngest and Peter was the oldest. Uh, so stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John's younger. He doesn't go in tombs, dead people. He kind of looks in. And then Simon Peter came. He's the older one. Simon's the guy who jumps first and thinks later, following him. And he went right into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths laying there. So Jesus would have been wrapped in cloths and they've been set off to the side. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but notice folded up in a place by itself. By the way, um, I like to say here that when Jesus rose from the dead, he made his bed. So parents, if you can't get your kids to make the bed, right, just like Jesus did, right? When he rose from the dead, you can do that on Monday. Uh, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in and he saw and he believed or he was, he was believing, he was starting to believe. It's, it's, he's starting to put it all together, but it isn't all quite there yet. Peter, on the other hand, it says in Luke, went away wondering, marveling, or uh, literally reasoning to himself what had happened. He, he can't put it all together. Again, we read it years later and go, why was that so hard? But see, nobody was expecting it. 
So this is challenging. They're not trying to process this. In John, it continues. It says, you know, the disciples went back. They're wondering, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And now it says she saw something different. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? These are not tears of joy, which they should have been, but they're, they're tears of sorrow. And they say, why are you weeping? And she says to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. I don't know. I just imagine the angels like going, you know, like they're, just, they're just like, they're so excited about what's happened. And she doesn't, she doesn't get it. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus does this on several occasions after the resurrection. He, he's with people. They don't recognize him. He has conversations with them. I can't imagine how he didn't just blurt it out like, it's me, you know, uh, to tell them like, I've risen from the dead. But he wants to have a little conversation. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, he'd just come to trim the hedges on Sunday, she, she said to him, sir, if maybe you did it if you've carried him away. Just, just tell me where you have laid him and, you know, there won't be any charges pressed and, I, and I'll take him away. See, because nobody was expecting nobody. No one was waiting at the tomb on Sunday morning in lawn chairs with snacks and coffee cake and, you know, a countdown clock over the stone, right? And, you know, they're having a church service and Peter's preaching and they're singing Easter songs. There's like none of that. There's none of that. No one was expecting this. And so the, the disciples go back to where they were staying. In fact, in John, it describes what happened later that day. And on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they're, they're in, a, an, in an upper room. The door is locked because they're afraid that the people who arrested and had Jesus put to death are coming for them next. They're afraid. They're full of fear. So they're in this room and the door is locked. And Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I always love this because I picture it like the first thing he says is, it's okay, right? Just, just calm down, take his antac because the door was locked and he just walked through the wall. He just appeared. And so I think they're freaking out because it's not just that it's Jesus. They're like, how did you get in here? And so Jesus says, you know, just, just peace out here. And when he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands so they knew it was him, the scars and his side and then the disciples, notice, were glad, no kidding, when they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he said this. He said, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus said, I need you to unlock the door. I need you to stop being afraid. And I need you to go tell people that I have risen from the dead. Because this is the story that is going to change the world. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, the resurrection changed the disciples and then it changed the world. In fact, it changed the disciples so dramatically. They went from these guys who were afraid to even admit to a little girl that they knew Jesus to a few months later, there's a story about Peter and John. They're, uh, they're going to the temple to pray. 
And as they're, they're going, they come across a man who's, who's paralyzed, can't walk. And so they decide to heal him. And they heal him and he jumps up and starts, you know, praising God. And it's this big crowd comes around. And so Peter starts to preach a sermon. He starts preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus, preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And eventually word gets to the religious leaders, the same guys who had Jesus arrested and crucified. Somebody comes in and says, you're not going to believe this. You thought it was over and there was guys are out there. Those guys who used to be afraid and now they're in the middle of a crowd and they're preaching about Jesus. So they went, had him arrested and, and brought him into the religious leaders, had a little talk and basically what they said was, you know, you guys can go on your way. And here's the deal. Stop preaching about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Stop it or else. Remember, these are the guys that had Jesus arrested and put to death. What's interesting to note is the response of the disciples. But Peter and John answered them, you know, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to listen to God, you, well, you just have to decide that because we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Jesus rose from the dead. How could we possibly keep that quiet? And the disciples go from denying and hiding in locked doors and fear to courageous. They unlock the door. They go out into the crowds. They're preaching Jesus. They're proclaiming the resurrection. They're serving like Jesus served, loving like Jesus loved, seeking the lost like Jesus did. They're being threatened. And when they're threatened, they don't back down. They're willing to go to prison. They're willing to die, which eventually they will for the sake of the gospel. How did that happen? How, what caused that kind of change in these men? I believe it's the resurrection they saw the resurrected Jesus. So you can't scare people who no longer fear death. And so the church was born. And when the church was born, you have to understand the early context of the church. The first Christians were Jews. And when these Jews became Christians, they would be persecuted by other Jews. This is what you got when you signed up uh, for Jesus. You got persecution. You became a social outcast. It often meant poverty, rejection by your family. And then eventually the Roman government got involved and there was jail and there was torture. And you, you know, some Christians were burned alive and some were crucified. There was no earthly advantage to being a Christian. Back then, if you went to a church service and they said, hey, anybody want to become a Christian, right? And, you know, walk up the aisle and, you know, while you're at it, make sure you got your life insurance covered and all that kind of stuff. Like, who in the world would sign up for that? And yet, people did. Historians have noted it was, a, it was a miracle that the church survived the first century. And yet today, Easter is celebrated by billions of people all over the world. Only the resurrection explains this. Now, about 23 years later, there's a guy named the Apostle Paul. You've probably heard of him. And he, he's just going to kind of wrap up the significance. What's the significance of the resurrection? And he's talking to this church in Corinth. And he, he, he says this in chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. By the way, all this is in the past tense, which is significant. I'll tell you why in a minute. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, again in the past tense, unless you believed in vain. And now he's going to give it to him. Let's talk about the significance of all this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul says, this is something that came to me and then I passed it on to you a while back. That Christ died for our sins. Here we go. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul says, I want to talk about the most important thing here. 
Let's talk about the main thing. The most important thing in life is the gospel. Or as we say around here a lot of times, the main thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? So that's what Paul wants to do. Let's talk about the main thing in life. Let's talk about the gospel. So he's going to just kind of narrow it all down here. 23 years later, what's the gospel all about? Well, he says it's a couple things. First of all, Christ died for our sins. So what Paul's saying, what the gospel says is this, that you and I are not some random chance accident of the universe of, of atoms colliding and amino acids coming together in a particular way. We were designed, we were created in the image of God. We were created with value and we were created, by the way, with purpose. Now, Jesus was asked, you know, what it, what, how would you describe the purpose of life? And he said, well, it really comes down to two things. To love God and love other people. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first. In other words, that we recognize God as God and we, we put God on the throne, if you will, of our life, of our heart. That he is first in our life. And that we treat other people or that we love other people the way that God has told us to love other people. But the Bible also says that all have sinned and fall short of God's standard for us. What that means is instead of loving God perfectly and instead of loving people, we chose another path. We took as individuals and as a race altogether, we had decided that we would take the life that God gives us and the time that God gives us and the relationships and the wealth and all that. And instead of doing what God has asked us to do, we did what we wanted to do what we wanted with our relationships, what we wanted with our time. Now, we like to say, well, we messed up or we made a mistake, but the Bible calls it sin. When we take what God has given us and we don't live according to his purposes. And the Bible says that sin, by the way, is brought around couple of things. It's brought death into our world. It's brought death to our soul and it's brought death to our body. So it brings death to our soul. And, and this is, so this is kind of an interesting thing when we talk about sin bringing death to our soul and what that means. That's a, that's a difficult thing for us to really understand. I'll give you an example. Um, because a lot of times what people think is, well, my, I sinned and my soul is dead. So the way I'm going to undo this is I'm going to try to be a good person and, and I'm going to try to do like these rituals and this kind of stuff and hopefully I can earn my way back to God. That's not the way it works when you're dead. Uh, three weeks ago, I was in Nicaragua with a team from um, Gateway. And when I go to Nicaragua, I always take my phone with me. But uh, I don't actually use the phone part of it because Verizon wants 10 bucks a day for that. So I just turn the phone part off and I use the camera and I uh, use it for video and pictures. Um, I, have, I do a lot of teaching. So I have notes in there on my phone. I have to-do lists and that kind of stuff that I put in there. One day, um, about halfway through the trip, we're out in the afternoon and my phone goes dead. Now, when my phone goes dead, here's the way it works. My, my phone, when it goes dead, doesn't, uh, doesn't, you know, grow legs and walk itself to a, a socket and, you know, get a plug and plug it in. And when my phone's dead, my phone's dead. There's nothing my phone can do to, to change its situation. In order for my phone to become undead, someone else has to step in. Someone else has to intervene and take care of it. Right, that's what it's like to be dead spiritually. Technically, dead things don't even know they're dead, right? This is, this is the problem, and dead things can't solve their own problem. This is why Jesus came. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to intervene. He came to bring life to that which was dead. But sin also brought physical death, and we're well aware of that because we are surrounded by death. We see it 
every day. We think about it in our own lives. And of course, for many of us, we're obsessed with uh, trying to, you know, make this life last as long as we can. And, you know, you can get all the exercise you want and you can eat right and take your vitamins and stay well hydrated and use your essential oils, but you're still going to die well hydrated, smelling good with your running shoes on. But this is the problem. Everyone dies. Jesus came and lived a perfect life in our place. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves because we were dead in our sin. And what Christ did is this. He went to the cross. It was always his plan, according to scriptures, to go to the cross and to bear your sin and my sin, the sins of the world, and to pay the price, pay this penalty for our sin on the cross, to take care of all of it. And he offers us in exchange. He says that if we will place our faith in the work that he did on the cross— that he will take all of our sin and that he will give us his righteousness or you could think of it as his a right standing before God. And this is what he offers to us. So Paul says, here's the gospel, Christ died for our sin. And the second thing he says is that he was buried. That is, he was certified dead by the Romans and by the Jews. And the third thing he says in the gospel is this, that he raised on the third day. And in raising from the dead, he conquered sin, and he conquered death. Now, New Testament scholars tell us that this passage that's on the screen here includes what we call a pre-existing creed, possibly the first form of the gospel that we have in writing. Now, let me explain that to you. So in the first century, very few people could read or write. In fact, they say in big cities and in centers of learning, maybe 15% of the population could read and write. And once you got out of the major cities, it was much less. So how could you communicate important information to people? If they came to church, they, they couldn't read the Bible even if they had it. It wasn't on the screen. And they didn't have it in handouts. They couldn't go to podcasts. So how could you learn things? Like how could you learn the gospel? And so what they would do is they would write these, these carefully crafted um, things that sometimes uh, it would be a poem or, or it would be a song, but it would be something that people could memorize and they call it a creed. So we have on the screen here is, is what many scholars believe is the first creed in the church, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Now, one scholar kind of tweaked it just a little bit in the English so we could maybe get a better sense of what it would have sounded like for the average person in a church in those days. And uh, so he kind of tweaked it just a little bit, and it sounds like this. Uh, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Has a little bit of, of cadence to it, if you will. And so they believe that this creed would have been taught in churches and it would be a way of teaching the gospel to people. So the pastor would preach and he would say, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. And he would say it again and again. And as you sat in church and you listened to it and he taught it, by the time he was done, you would have had it memorized. Even though you couldn't read or write, you would memorize this creed and you would take it with you. And this is kind of how it works. It's going to be a test here, all right? Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. All right, let's try this. Now, you're going to finish it, all right? Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose. See, you guys are really bright. So this is the way that it would work. They would come to church and they would hear this creed and they would, they would know it. And, and here's the deal. By the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, this creed is already well known. In fact, scholars say it's likely the oldest piece of literature we have in the New Testament. 
Now, today, sometimes when I'm talking about the gospel, depending on how much time I have, um, instead of three things, I often will say the gospel is five things. Um, and the, I'll say uh, the gospel is this. Uh, Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and saves. It's just a little bit more. I'm just kind of filling it out. Jesus came. The only point I'm trying to make is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He was preexistent. He, he was alive in eternity past. And when he was born into this earth, he, he didn't start living. He just continued to live. And Jesus came and he came on a mission. He came to save us. Jesus came, Jesus lived. So he lived a righteous life, a perfect life, which he loved God and loved people according to God's will. He came, he lived, he died. He went to a cross where he bore all of our sin where he paid the price, and then he rose. He conquered sin, he conquered death. Jesus came, lived, died, rose. And I always like to add one more, and that is he saves. For people who place their faith in Christ, that is their trust in Christ. It's not about works or religion or ritual, but when they trust, when they believe Christ, when they believe him, God gives something to us. That something is called grace. The word grace in the New Testament in the Greek simply means a free gift or unmerited favor. So you don't earn salvation through being good enough. It's a gift that God gives you when you believe, when you trust Christ. Now, this is essentially the gospel. Reading this week, I was reminded uh, about something, and maybe you've seen this as well. I was reading this objection, and this guy was saying, you know, the problem he has with the gospel is that uh, he said, you know, we don't really know when um, the gospels when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. And his whole thing was, and you probably read this, is some modern-day skeptics who say, you know, the gospels were written hundreds of years later by, by Christians. It was all propaganda. Um, you know, Jesus never rose from the dead, but they just did it. Uh, to make people want to join the church and to give money to the church. And it never really happened. And, and, uh, and it's an interesting um, kind of scenario, but so uh, not rooted in reality or fact. So let me just kind of walk you through this a little bit and tell you why I say this. So here's a couple things we know. First of all, um, when we talk about Jesus, there's no real debate today amongst uh, historians. What did, was there really a guy named Jesus who lived? And, and that's been put to rest a while ago. We know there was a guy. We know his name was Jesus. We know where he lived. We have recordings of things that he did and things that he said. Um, they may disagree a little bit on was he really God? Did he really work miracles? But there was this guy named Jesus. He was crucified around 32 AD. This is something we know. Now, another thing you won't hear a lot of debate about is a guy named Paul. So uh, you might, you know, a lot of people don't like Paul, but there's not really debate. Was there a guy named Paul who lived, who was Saul, was a Jew, and became a Christian? Uh, way too much evidence and uh, way too much stuff written, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, to support that. There was a guy named Paul, and around 37 AD, so about five years after the resurrection, Paul becomes a Christian. Now, Paul was not a disciple of Jesus when Jesus was alive on this earth. In fact, uh, Paul was a hater of Jesus, uh, a hater of Christians. We know that uh, after the resurrection, he was harassing Christians, abusing them, imprisoning them, having them put to death. And then in 37 AD, he becomes a believer. He kind of has a face-to-face a -face with the resurrected Jesus. And then uh, he kind of goes into seclusion for a while. He studies the Bible 
visits with Peter and James, uh, Jesus' younger half-brother, gets some first-hand information, begins telling other people about the resurrection, begins writing about it, writes to the Galatians and others. He travels around uh, planting churches. And in uh, 55, uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians uh, and wrote the passage we just looked at. And uh, so that's about 23 years later. And in fact, what he wrote, again, notice this. He, he wrote, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Notice how this is all in the past tense. What he's saying is this. Paul's saying, in the past I came to you, and in the past I preached to you, in the past I told you about the resurrection. When was that past? Well, it was about three years earlier, in 52. Paul went to Corinth and at that time, he proclaims the gospel and he's telling them all about Jesus who had risen from the dead. So this, this here is about 20 years from the time Jesus was resurrected. Now, I know for some of you, 20 years is like a lifetime, but for some of us, 20 years is like the blink of an eye. So I'm, I'm, I'm 57 and uh, 20 years is not that long ago to me. In fact, I was thinking about that. So 20 years to me is, uh, it's 1998 and in 1998, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, uh, I was here in 1998. I was preaching an Easter message in 1998. I was just next door, but I was here. In 1998, I, have, I, I had hair. I have pictures to prove it. I didn't have a lot of it, but I had hair. Uh, if you look at 1998, you'll also notice there were two names that dominated the news cycle all year long in 1998. One of them was President Clinton, and the other one was Monica Lewinsky. That was 1998. Dominated the news cycle. In 1998, do you remember AOL and dial-up? Yeah, right? That was 1998. Google was born that year. Uh, and in 1998, people were starting to get really worked up about something. You know what that was? Y2K. That's right. You guys were hiding water in your basement and uh, all that kind of stuff and getting ready. It's still down there. You really should throw it out. Uh, so what's interesting to notice here is that Paul quotes in this passage a, a gospel creed that had been around for a while. And so when people say, oh, the gospel, you know, when it talks about Jesus rising from the dead, that was hundreds of years later. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. In fact, it was just several years later that people began proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I love what Paul does here. Paul, Paul just, he's saying to the Corinthians, he's saying this, look, if you don't believe me, Right? I, I get it. If you don't want to just take my word for it. So Paul says, here, here, try this. He says, now when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom, and here's the great part, most of whom, by the way, are still alive, he says. Uh, this is 20 years later. Uh, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul's just saying this. If you don't believe me, then just do some fact-checking. Like, go to church this weekend. Uh, listen to an apostle teach. Afterwards, ask him some questions. Tell him what you're struggling with when it comes to faith. Go to Jerusalem. Visit some firsthand witnesses who, who saw the resurrected Jesus. I'll give you a few addresses. You can go have talk with them. You can question them. Paul puts the challenge out there. He says, you don't have to take my word for it. Google it, investigate it, interrogate the eyewitnesses. But Paul's saying this. Paul's saying, uh, my life has literally changed because of the resurrection. Paul bet his life on Jesus rising from the dead. Paul gave up his job, gave up his title, gave up his status, gave up his wealth. Paul gave up his home and his comfort and his belief system. 
Paul got on a ship and traveled all around the major ports of the Mediterranean. He went to synagogues. He met with Jews. He talked about Jesus. They kicked him out. He went back. They threw stones at him. He, they, he kicked him out. He went back. They threw him in jail. Eventually, he goes to the Gentiles. It's another crazy story. Sharing the gospel with them, being rejected by them, but some place their faith in Christ. Physical abuse, shipwreck, prison, and death. How do you explain a change like that in a guy like Paul who hated Jesus and hated Christians? Well, I believe it's the resurrection. It was a resurrection that changed the disciples on day one. It was a resurrection who changed a guy named Paul five years later. It was a resurrection that changed people in Corinth 20 years later. It was a resurrection that changed our calendar, has changed governments. 2,000 years later, it's changed me and many of you and billions of people all over the world. And we're still telling the story and we're still celebrating, and we're still singing and studying, but most importantly, we're still believing, believing in Jesus. Because folks, there's nothing more important, nothing more important than this story right here. So what do we do with this? Well, in a minute, we're going to pray, and I, it's always good to talk to God. I mean, if you came this morning, and you just don't know where you stand with God, in a minute, we're going to pray, and I just would encourage you, it's always a good idea to talk to God. Here's what you need to know, all right? He's been seeking you. He's been after you. You don't find God. God found you, and he's here with you this morning. I'd encourage you to read the Gospels, to read about Jesus, his life, his words, his actions, his death. Talk to people. That's what Paul said. Maybe you need to talk to some people who are Christians. Ask them, why do you believe? Ask them, what has Jesus done for you? How do you know that the resurrection is real? But what it all comes down to is this. You got to trust. You got to believe Jesus. You got to believe what he did for you on the cross and place your faith in him. Because see, here's the, the, the important question is not, is Jesus God? Jesus is God no matter what you think and no matter what I think. Here's the important question for you. Have you placed your faith in him? Because that will determine, determine both how you live today and your eternity. I want to I close with, with this verse in Romans. Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, notice you will be saved. And then he explains how this works. For with the heart one believes and is justified. In those days they would talk about the heart as the, the seat of where our will is, where we make decisions. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We've been studying the, the book of James and James says that everything that comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So here's what he's saying. You're not saved by saying some magical words or praying some magical prayer. You're saved when you believe. The confession just reflects what's already in the heart. To confess that Jesus is Lord, both in your heart and with your words. And so I want to I close this with prayer. And we're going to do something a little bit different than, uh, than maybe we often do when we, we talk about evangelism and, and accepting Jesus Christ. But let, let's pray together. And I'll walk you through this. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. I thank you that uh, we are here not because we have been seeking you, but you have been seeking us. And you have brought us here.